Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side-by-side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at NerdWallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com consulting. IBM, let's create. There is a deep desire to think about the issue of climate change in broader, more personal terms, and it's a desire that's not being met. And I think the, the, the reception of this story has shown that. People are worried about this. People feel it. There's a sense of unresolved, whether it's guilt or angst or what, how, however you want to describe it, that's out there that's not being met by the, the writing about this issue, and it's not being met by the way people talk about the issue. And I think that has to change. There's a great desire for it to change, but we haven't quite figured out how to do it. But I think it'll happen soon. That was Nathaniel Rich. I'm Sam Fragoso, and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. In August, the New York Times Magazine devoted a whole issue, cover to cover, to a landmark article entitled Losing Earth, The Decade We Almost Stopped Climate Change. The unprecedented piece was written by journalist Nathaniel Rich, who spent 18 months investigating the time between 1979 and 1989. It's the decade in which humans really first began to understand the causes and dangers of climate change. For those who have yet to read the piece, I'll read a bit from the prologue for context. The world has warmed more than one degree Celsius since the Industrial Revolution, writes Rich. The Paris Climate Agreement, the non-binding, unenforceable, and already unheated treaty signed on Earth Day in 2016, hoped to restrict warming to two degrees. The odds of succeeding, according to a recent study based on current emission trends, 
are 1 in 20. If by some miracle we are able to limit warming to 2 degrees, we will only have to negotiate the extinction of the world's tropic reefs, sea level rise of several meters, and the abandonment of the Persian Gulf. The climate scientist James Hansen has called the two-degree warming a prescription for long-term disaster. Long-term disaster is now the best-case scenario. I read the article after three different friends of mine insisted I read it. It's unequivocally the most devastating, upsetting piece of journalism I have read in a long, long time. Nathaniel lays out what the future is likely going to resemble in a way I have never really seen it. If you're like me, you're probably someone who thought, okay, climate change is obviously happening. We're in dire shape. It is not good. But in the back of my head, I always thought, well, yes, it's bad and probably irreversible, but I most likely won't have to be around for it. And really, it's just a problem my future children will have. And maybe not even my future children, maybe their children. And by that point, you know, I'm probably not going to be around for my grandchildren, so what the hell. But I was wrong, and I was naive, and I was silly. I suspect I'm not alone in this feeling. What Nathaniel contends, pretty convincingly, is that this problem is closer than anticipated. So, for the next 45 minutes, we have a conversation that, uh, given the subject at hand, I think, could have been much, much more bleak than it ended up being. Also, in case you notice, yes, we did record this conversation outside, in my backyard. There's some wind from time to time, but uh, I figured we enjoy this weather while we still have it. So, finally, here is Nathaniel Rich. I kind of just want to start there with you as someone who spent 18 months writing this thing and reporting on it. What were the answers you found about how people value future? I think we flatter ourselves that we have some great reverence for the future. Uh, I think we, I think we care about the short term future. I think we have some regard for the middle-term future, which is to say maybe a decade or two okay. or three from now. Middle-term is decade or two. That's I'll define it that way. Okay. Um, and the long-term future... Anything over Generational future. Yeah, I don't think we really take it very seriously on, on any level. And, and, you know, some of the most fascinating discoveries I made in the research is that there's this whole, for the pieces, there's this whole body of scholarly literature asking this question, but, but coming at it from various different angles and different disciplines, human psychology, um, political science, uh, a lot of the social sciences and economics, of course. And, and they were asking that question in terms of, of climate change by the late seventies. And they all pretty much agreed, came to the same conclusions, which was to say that uh, we don't value the future very much and that our actions show that. And that when it comes to climate change, because the ramifications, certainly in the, from the vantage point of 1979, say, 
were so far in the future or thought to be so far in the future, um, they doubted that, that even in the best case scenario, in other words, even if everybody agreed on the science, everybody understand the urgency of the problem mm-hmm. and the wisdom of, of taking action immediately, that we still wouldn't take the appropriate uh, sufficient action to, to avoid a pretty horrific uh, scenario. Yeah. And so I, I, I'm sort of, I guess personally, I'm, i that's how I feel to some extent. I think we, we plan for the future. We do it, um, you know, certainly where it's convenient. Um, but whenever we get into a situation where we have to take major, um, really sacrifice our own convenience or well-being in the present, it's, we rarely tend, you know, certainly collectively to take, um, decisive action. Did you figure out a reason why that may be? Well, <clears throat> I think there are a lot of reasons for it. I mean, I think I think part of it has to do with a, a fear of really coming to terms with a distant future, because really what that's we're talking about is coming to terms with uh, death and a future in which we're not alive. And I think that's something that's very hard for human beings to do in a really rigorous way. Right. And it's not the most fun topic. No, no. And, and and when it comes to climate change, we're really talking about the threat to human civilization. We're talking about the danger of a civilizational death. And I think that's as difficult to reckon with uh, seriously as our own deaths. So which is not to say that there aren't ways around this. You know, obviously we you know, we have certain tendencies, um, but there are ways of overcoming that. And so I don't, I don't mean to suggest that this is an impossible problem, but mm-hmm. I, I do think that in order to begin to solve it, we have to really reckon with some of these hard truths about ourselves. Something you do throughout is paint these scenes in, in, with such specificity that I, I don't know how that even happened. But you have a quote, you say, they understood what was at stake but they hadn't taken it to heart. They remained cool, detached, pragmatist, overmatched by a problem that had no pragmatic solution. The line that stuck out to me is, they hadn't taken it to heart, which to me, I think is not only true of the people in that time, which was late 70s, early 80s, I think that's when that meeting happened. It's true now. So when you're writing this story, is this in, is this in your head, that idea that people are having a hard time taking the, the, the severity of this issue to heart. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, you, you can't help but recognize the parallels. Um, especially the scene I think you're referencing is the scene in 1980 at the Pink Palace, this, this sort of gaudy Disney-like hotel in, uh, right at sea level in Florida, um, in the Gulf of Mexico where you have a couple dozen of the the country's leading experts on climate change and basically the politics and economics around it and really in the philosophy of human behavior around it. And they all get together. They all agree on the basic issues and the basic conclusions of the science, which are the same as they are today. And they cannot, for the life of them, agree on a single statement, let alone do what they're 
they're there for, which is they'd been summoned by Congress to to, to come up with uh, legislative proposals right. for for climate policy, <clears throat> and and that to me that that scene kind of en- encapsulates the whole the whole thing. Um, you know, the other thing the thing that was most surprising really about the research is is that they there's no conversation that we have today that wasn't being had verbatim in 1980, and that you know, and you see it even in that scene that where they're talking about. Um, geoengineering. They're talking about um, what are we going to do to help developing countries who need to come on the grid? What kind of sacrifices do we need to make? What's the political will? Um, how do we deal with uncertainties in the science? How do we deal with um, devastation that's supposed to happen in the future? And yeah, so it's impossible to read the transcript of the of the meeting, which is, you know, the whole thing is something like five or 600 pages long, and, and not to see playing out exactly the same conversation that we have today to this day there's really nothing that comes up today that wasn't articulated then and that's it's on you know on one level it's depressing um on on almost every level it's it's very depressing on the other hand i think it's it's if we recognize that we're in the same place and that we're having the same conversations i think there's there's some path out if we can acknowledge you know our limitations acknowledge our you know where these conversations tend to go and where they tend to get blocked i think that's you know so saying it's the first step towards really thinking in a more serious way about the issue and i don't i still think we're at this very uh, somewhat immature uh level of the conversation right would you call yourself a pragmatist yeah i'm a pragmatist you're a pragmatist yeah yeah i asked that because you spend 18 months writing this story. <laughs> right. Uh, there are probably more pragmatic ways of going about it. I was a little bit um, overwhelmed. No, I'm not saying you took like a circuitous route. Oh, I d- okay. I, I did. I did. Oh, for the you did. Yeah, okay. Did. <laughs> <laughs> we got that on tape. Yeah, yeah. Great. Yeah. I-, I asked that only because if you're spending a year and a half on a story, which for people listening, they probably know, but it's maybe worth repeating that, that is highly unusual for a journalist to spend 18 months on a story. It's, it's, it's a, a rarity these days, especially given the business of journalism. In your reporting, in your writing, when you're alone with this thing, are you trying to find a pragmatic solution to the bigger problem that you're writing about? I'm absolutely trying to find pragmatic solutions, but it's not to the solution of, not to the problem of what do we do about climate change. It's It's... It's how you write the story. How do you write the story? Yeah, right. and and this one had a particularly difficult set of challenges. It's a historical narrative, and about a time that you know there are people who have memories of it, but they're not always great memories. And about a lot of events that even at the time maybe didn't seem significant to the people involved. You know, most of the time of of, of the, the eighteen months was doing research trying to 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 figure out what the the narrative was it wasn't always having you know higher thoughts about what the future of humanity holds for right. us what's interesting is that <clears throat> while i was writing the piece yeah 95% of the time i was working on trying to make the the story work um the nuts and bolts of it and then since it's been out, ninety-five percent of the co- the conversation has been about well, what do we make of all of right. this? What do we where do we go from here? What are the <laughs> yeah. what are the higher thoughts? So the dialogue is about the five percent. Yeah, it's basically about the did. epilogue, which is was 
which is pretty short to the piece, which is a, really a suggestion of, of you know, what, my answer to that question of what do we make of all of right. this. Maybe the better question is, how the hell do you remain sane over 18 months? <laughs> well, it's, it's not really different from any other piece of writing. And, and, well, that's not true. I mean, it was very different because it was a historical piece. So I, I, I have a newfound sympathy for the work of historians. I mean, I have a good friend who's a great uh, historian, actually a historian of disasters, Andy Horowitz at Tulane, and he... Pretty uh, tough beat, by the way. Yeah, right. Well, he's got a lot to work with. Um, but he would he would tell me, you know, oh, yeah, I'll go, I'll go to an archive for a week and be lucky if I can get, you know, some, the equivalent of one sentence of, of a historical paper. And I always thought that was he was sort of putting me on a bit, but um, it's true. <laughs> I can say, you know, from spending all this time at the National Archives, at the Reagan Library, at various private collections, um, you name it, UCSD, reading Roger Ravel papers, like it, it's, it's just um, time-consuming. It's just time-consuming, and it's, when you find something, it is very thrilling. Like when I find the, found the entire transcript, for instance, of the Pink Palace meeting, which had never been reported or acknowledged in yeah. any kind of text, then it's it's thrilling, and you need that to make the, make the piece. But um, those no, breaks are few and far between. You few and far between, and, and also, <clears throat> and most of the time, and there's so many dead ends. You know, that was a huge part of the time, which was frustrating. I mean, I spent months and months trying to get more about oil and gas industry during this period um, until I finally realized I had all of it. And after talking to a million people who worked in the industry and reading every mm. document you could find, um, and, you know, I spent a long time trying to find out about, uh, you know, an earlier version of the piece had this whole thing about the melting glaciers. And I uh. spent months on that. I had this <clears throat> this one thing I was really sad to lose is this eccentric glaciologist named John Mercer, who in the er- in the early 70s was the first person to put together the fact that rising temperatures would lead to um, the melting of the West Antarctic ice sheet, which would be responsible for all the sea level rise. When we talk about sea level rise, it's a lot of, you know, predominantly from West Antarctic ice sheet. He figured that out, and he's a fascinating, eccentric guy. I mean, long deceased, unfortunately, but he he would go walking around on the ice caps naked. Oh. Scampering around, (laughs) and I had this whole... Doesn't that seem cold? Yeah, I think he would often, I guess when he was fully, I think in South America, he would do it more, not so much in in the South Pole, but he would, when you're at high altitude, so you're still, you're in like the tropics, but there's still ice because you're at such a high elevation. I mean, not good for your skin. No, but uh, who's to say you or I wouldn't do that given the opportunity? Absolutely. What is your um, like sort of day to day like in writing this story? You know, there were weeks where I was just in, in doing research or having interviews, but then it was, um, I just wrote a giant master draft that was some 45,000 words, so mm-hmm. about 50% longer than the final thing with a whole narrative that ended up being cut. But, you know, I, was, I, I, I created a kind of master story with every piece of information. I, I sort of had to do it that way because there's so much information. Um, when you're writing this, are you... Uh especially obsessive in this moment? Yeah, pretty obsessive. I want to get everything in. Right. And I felt like because it was so complicated and there was so much to it and it was so such a long story, I had to get this huge sort of block of marble before I could start to chisel it and, and think about 
how to tell it well. It was more just kind of a, almost like a an outline right. at, at first, and then I then it was going over it a million times. I think it went through ten, maybe not a million drafts, but ten dra- ten drafts probably, and shaping it and improving the prose and all of that, mm. and, and trying to find the heart of it. Does your life outside of the story uh, is, is it just almost non-existent? That eighteen months was more or less the first 18 months of my son's life so I was I was in the middle of being a dad being a dad for the first time and you know so it's kind of going back and forth between those things and and certainly being a father makes you more acutely sensitive to questions about the future so I'm sure that was going on at least at some subconscious level but no it wasn't like I would get up from the desk and and hold my son and just burst into tears <laughs> looking in his eyes or anything like that. It was, um, you know, it was like anything else. You, I was doing my work and then trying to separate from it at the end of the day. Is that difficult? Not really for me. I sort of figured it out. I mean, it, when I was starting out, I didn't have any kind of boundaries between work and life and being married and having a child and especially having a child and being on a very specific time schedule has has corrected that quite mm. uh, aggressively. The underpinning is, you know, there are children and unborn children to come who will have to bear some of this more than maybe you and I will, although we will also have to. And something that just it dawned on me, and another friend brought this up as well, actually when I said I was interviewing you, he, I asked him, do you have anything you'd want to ask? And he texted me this like very aggressive, passionate question. Let's hear it. Yeah, let's hear it. I'll, I have it right here. He says, how do you believe powerful deniers of climate change see themselves in the context of history? They have the same information as you and I. So how do they go about rationalizing this to their children, to future generations of people who will have to pay the consequences. Right. That's a really good question, and it's one that I have. I, I spoke to one of, the, <clears throat> one of them. I asked him directly, John Sununu, who's you know, his chief of staff for the first George Bush, was the single person most responsible for throttling the progress, the international progress towards a global, binding global treaty um, at the end of the decade, of the 80s. He is not convinced by the science to this day. Mm-hmm. He's proud of the role he played, in the, in the process, um, he still thinks that, you know, certainly since he doesn't believe the science, um, he still thinks it would have been a terrible deal for the U.S. to get involved in any kind of climate treaty. And he's disappointed now with the oil and gas industry, even, because they are now, you know, the Republican Party now, the, the central doctrine, one of the central tenets of being a Republican is to deny climate change. The, the oil and gas industry doesn't do that publicly. You know, what what they do privately, you know, they certainly are not good Samaritans and they're certainly backing every evil person, politician you could you could you could think of, but publicly they they can't deny it anymore. In fact, they promote if you look at these na- national spots for Exxon, it's all about how they're building the way to a new green future. They're mm-hmm. doing something with algae or whatever, you know. BS uh, is involved, and but but they're selling themselves as green companies essentially. So, but the Republican Party is beyond that, and I think it, it brings up a larger question, which is to say, 
who really is a denialist? You know, I wonder, I mean, I spoke to a, uh, some friends in D.C. who are sort of, you know, within the political world and, and asked them well, what, essentially a version of this question, like Scott Pruitt, like, does he, you know, does he really believe this stuff that he says? And they all felt, no, he doesn't believe it. These aren't, you know, idiots. Mm. Um that they're exposed to all of the expertise in science that we are, and they just know politically that they can't claim that this is going on. Otherwise, they will be at risk of having to change their policies or just to support. And I think the way they probably think about it is that they probably it's probably some combination of, well, these fears are overstated, um, mm-hmm. If I had to speculate, so they uh, hear the data and they say the they data. They hear it. I think the data is probably true. They, I think, I, my best, my best answer would be, and this is the conserv. This is this is the conservative answer mm-hmm. that no conservatives make anymore. It is that yes, this is happening. Yes, we've caused it. However, we believe in the free market to address this problem, as it has every other problem in history. They would say uh, the power of American technology to fix it. Um, this is what you heard from, from Republican scientists in the early 80s. They were saying, yes, this is a problem, but look, we solved, uh, you know, we won the war through American technology. We've developed the nuclear bomb. We developed the, the computer industry, the space you know, aeronautic industry. We can fix carbon dioxide. So essentially it's, it's boundless faith in the market to figure out solutions in time and for a technological fix. Mm-hmm. Now, there's very strong arguments, you know, that can be made in, in opposition, but that's where, if you, that's where I, I think the heart of the denial, or at least the minds of the denialist people are who actually under, understand the science. I mean, then you have people who are just believe whatever the party tells them, and, and I think they just are in, in full denial. Mm-hmm. Um, but for people who... And then there's the Johnson Nunes, who are a small fraction of folks who are smart and still don't believe the science. But I have to, I have to guess that more, you know, elected national elected Republican Republicans are probably are just at the place where they they know it's real, but they don't feel that they really need to address it. Mm-hmm. Do you think, uh, on the whole, that morality plays any part? in their response in in the equation of, of climate change do they feel they have any do they have any moral duty to tell their kids that this is happening do they not feel any guilt about that should they i think they should i think they don't really feel guilt i think it's amoral and i think that's how we have to speak about it in moral terms and i think we have to acknowledge the amorality of these actions especially by people who know better yeah. And, you know, I think we, we talk about the amorality of politicians who are supporting, you know, insane gun laws and, you know, family separation at the border, things like that. We, we talk about in moral terms. Uh, we don't talk about climate in that way. So when you have, you know, Trump relaxing auto efficiency regulations the coverage is oh he's doing this to you know piss off you know because obama it's it's something to it's a way of um rebuking obama it's a way of like putting a thumb in the eye of the environmentalists it's a way of 
giving out a sop to industry and all of that, but we don't talk about it as a moral crime. And, and I think, of course, it is. And until we talk about it in those terms, I don't think we're going to, the needle's going to move politically. Because, mm. you know, you and I can go back and forth on this, but at the end of the day, you, we're both probably in the same camp. So, you know, in all the podcasts you have gone on and all the interviews you've done, I imagine 90% of them are, are conducted by people who feel the same as you do and, yeah. re- and responded to the story in such a, a, a rapturous, serious way. And I guess like, I, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to not agree with you. It's, it's more of how do we talk about this in, in a way that includes the opposition and maybe I, maybe it starts with me not using or calling them the opposition. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I don't Do you know see myself about? as an activist. Like, yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, I th- well, there's a big debate within the activist community about how to engage these folks who are basically deniers. Deny—it's not exactly the right word to call those call people denialists. I don't think. I think there's a—it's underplaying the level of ignorance that's involved. It's a kind of um, flattery to call it denialists because mm. it's not like they understand the science that I feel like in most cases that they're rejecting Yeah, um, to speak frankly but you know I was in Missouri last week at an event at the journalism school there and I, and I did a public event I, I spoke to students and I did a public event and there was a discussion among the, the people giving the program um, saying, who said well you know we're in Missouri this is a red state and there might be people in attendance who don't believe in this stuff and we don't want to we want to be careful about how we talk about this we don't want to offend them and make them sound, make them think that they're stupid or something because mm-hmm. um, that turns people off and I I don't agree with that I don't I don't think you know we we don't you know when we talk about evolutionary biology if there's some new new development say in the scholarship that gets an article in a, in a mainstream publication we don't have paragraphs about how a lot of people think evolution is not real they believe in the bible you know or we don't have when we talk about anything that's global there's not a um you know a paragraph that says well a lot of people think the earth is flat right and so we need to respect that and honor their opinion so you're wondering about when does data become accepted fact I guess I have two answers. One is I don't I don't think that the people who deny the science can really be motivated by a logical argument. But it's sort of if the question is how do you how do you change their mind, that's really a question for kind of activists. I think that the answer is through a moral framework, to understanding this 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 issue in a, in a moral framework, and that's how people's minds have changed about other intract, seemingly intractable social issues in the past, um, whether it's segregation um, or racial segregation or, you know, gay marriage or kind of violence, et cetera, you have these major turns in public opinion only once a moral argument is articulated. So I think that's the way to get to those people. If you're a politician or if you're an activist or if you're um, anyone who cares about this, I guess. But then the question is, how much do you, what level of respect do you assign to those people who, who believe that now? You know, of course, I respect them as human beings, but I don't respect the argument. Mm-hmm. I don't think it has any intellectual merit. So I don't feel that it's my job to kind of grovel to it. And did you at Missouri? 
No, I didn't. Um, but there was also nobody who seemed, you know, I don't think a lot of denial, denial, you know, ardent denialists are going to in a, a big event about climate change in the right. first place. So. I, the, the one thing I found in opposition to your article was a piece by The Atlantic, the wonderful publication, The Atlantic. They wrote an article called The Problem with the New York Times Big Story on Climate Change. It was uh, on August 1st. It's by Robinson Meyer. And uh, his central takeaway was, having read the story, I'm left to wonder, what was the point? Maybe you have read this piece. I, I skimmed it It's because it's... Um, mostly indecipherable but i think there is that question is not completely invalid in that i think some people could spend time reading an article which takes time to read and could say well god that's a bummer now what 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 the hell is the point of that yeah well i i mean i wonder what the point <laughs> the point of of that particular article was because it makes a lot of of very strongly worded claims without offering any substantive evidence. Um, his main two points are the oil and gas industry isn't blamed enough and the Republican Party isn't blamed enough for their actions during this decade. Now, of course, in the piece, it's very clear that the industry mobilizes and the Republican Party mobilizes in lockstep with the oil and gas industry against climate policy in the 90s. It really starts at the end of the decade, and I tell the story of how that first begins. Um, but he he claims that they were much more involved in suppressing science and um, destroying uh, the political any political chance for a solution during the 80s. But he offers not a single piece of evidence that's not already in the in the piece. So it's just a weird argument. Um, the question of and nobody and, and I've seen no substantiated um, claims to that effect. Um, so there's, but there's a part. It speaks to a kind of orthodoxy within the activist community that 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 he's a part of, which is essentially you should not write an article that is not in service of activism. It's not in serv- service of a direct action, mm-hmm. and that's really how a lot of climate pieces are written, including in mainstream press, which basically, you know, the, tro- the, the they fall into these sort of tropes or cliches where it's, you know here's some new development that's a disaster, you know, right. methane regulations or something. This is a problem because the earth is warming by this amount. If we don't do something, and this is scary because it's going to, all this devastation will come in the future. And like, I mean, you know, you're not in your head because you've read this piece a million times. And it's, but it's not too late if we do X. X, right? X. And that's... It becomes a call to action. Yeah. And I don't, and that's fine for those pieces to exist. I don't think that's the only way to write about this issue. It's not the only way we write about any other issue. And so as to what's the point, I mean, I think part of the point is is the fact that it stimulated more conversation about this issue than, you know, I think anything in, in years, it seems. And also, and I think that's because it's not, doesn't condescend to the, to the readers and it's not... Um, and I don't have answers. And, and I, think, I think the role of any piece of writing that has merit, is, and not just journalistic, is to ask these deeper questions. And I think some of these questions don't have clear answers. And I think that's very scary to a lot of people, especially activists, that there aren't clear answers. Of course, the role of activism is to give people a clear answer and mm-hmm. a clear response. Right. 
um, and, I and resist that. And so that's a, I think that's very threatening. I wonder how those people feel about like therapy. <laughs> not too good. <laughs> Do they go to therapy and they're like, why are you not telling me exactly what's wrong with me now? <laughs> yeah, what to do. I mean, I think there's, look, I think there's, a, we need more activism. We need better activism. We need better written activist, you know, writing. Mm. Um, and there, But that's not what I do. You know, I think my responsibility is to the reader, is to the truth, and ultimately to my own interests. And, and I was interested in writing this story because I thought it's a story that nobody knows much about, that it, it reveals something central to the issue. And I wanted to ask questions that, as I said, I don't feel have clear answers. And essentially, when it comes down to questions about what should we do about the future, it's a very subjective, these are very subjective questions that each of us has to answer for ourselves. And that's something that a, that a piece of narrative writing can open up. And, um, but it's, again, it's a different, it's almost like it's a category error to say, well, this, this piece is a failure because it doesn't tell us how to, what to do next. Um, no, of course I wouldn't, I never would write a piece like that. Did you think by the end of writing this story that you Nathaniel would know what to do next? No, I, I don't. I mean, <clears throat> you know, I, in my personal life, there are things that I do. There's, there, you know, I give money to some activist organizations. I structure my life in certain ways because I think about these issues a lot. Um, I do think that, as I said, that the conversation is at a very immature Phase and that we're inevitably going to enter into this new phase, which is a question, which is essentially reckoning with how did we get here and reckoning with our own failures and understanding what role our own failures uh, as, a, as a species, as a society, as a democracy might play in whatever solutions we, we um, try. Mm. So I think there, I do have views about where this is going, but it's not prescriptive. Right. I want to have on tape you giving, um, and this is a terrible thing to ask of you, but I'm going to ask it of you, your forecast of what it looks like in 30 to 40 years. Because I think of all the damning tidbits in this story, the sort of prognostication is, I think, the most soul-crushing thing you wrote in there. And I do mean soul-crushing. I think it, it put me into a... Uh, pretty deep paralysis for about a couple of weeks. And I, I don't mean to say you should feel bad about that. It's, I'm just being honest with you. And I know I've, I've, I've had friends who feel the same, but they don't know how to proceed. So I would like, <laughs> why don't you talk about what you found? Here's your question. Where's, where's the science going to be? What, how many degrees warmer are we going to yeah, be? Yeah, the warmer, but also what it looks like in human practical terms in 30 to 40 years. And you can be as bleak and concise as you want to be. I don't know. I mean, I don't know the answer to that question. I, I do feel that at a certain point, if we don't act, the suffering will be at a level in which we have no choice but to talk about it in moral terms and to take major action. If we wait that long, if we wait you know, decades... It's, it's really too late to avoid some really bad situations. So the question is, can a movement form faster than, um, than that? And, and that's where I come to this, this idea of 
of looking at other major social issues and, and how change has happened swiftly. And of course, we need change to happen swiftly because we, we're on a very tight time frame now. But you know, there are there are solutions out there. James Hansen has a solution. There are lots of others that are plans that uh, I mean, Hansen's is a plan that starts in 2021 after Trump's first term, uh, not coincidentally, that over the course of a decade. Um, is it basically transitions the entire global uh, energy economy, as I understand it, away from fossil fuels to renewable and uh, crucially nuclear? So there, there are plans that were that are, it's technologically possible still to keep warming under two degrees Celsius, and it's um, and there are very strong economic arguments for why doing so would be hugely beneficial mm-hmm. to you know GDP or, or you know so on. But there was question, the question is the political will and. You know, so then it comes down to whether whether a, kind, a moral argument can be made to mobilize a population that goes beyond politics, and I think it's possible, but I don't know. I mean, I think my best guess is was we're probably in a kind of a middle road that's probably on the the worst worst side of the median, but is not the end of civilization. Um, but I, I can only speculate. It'll be the end of civilization for some places. Yeah, sure. It's already happening. I mean, that's already happening. Right. Um, you know, huge, you know, enormous immigration issues and geopolitical tension. I mean, the the, the way that we will feel the the way that we will suffer first is not through just wild. You know, it's not the wildfires and the floods and the hurricanes. It's war. It's a war over resources and war stoked by major changes in, in climate that then imperil national economies in different parts of the world. Mm. Um, yeah, so I think that's the first, that'll be the first touch of it. And, and, and you could argue that we're already starting to see that Syria, you can make a global warming argument for why that started that crisis. I've, I have something for you as just a person on the planet. After reporting on this for as long as you did and understanding that a lot of what has happened and what's going to happen it's it's fairly irreversible some of the some of the pain we've caused ourselves how does that affect you in in your life and yeah, you, you're I mean, you're a dad now you're married right, yeah yeah I, it's something i worry about uh and it's something i also put out of my mind depending on my mood or what's going on and <laughs> Just like anything else, it's the same way. I mean, I, I think it's really is analogous to death. I mean, I, I worry about my death. I don't. It's not something I like to think about. Logically, I un, I understand it on a rational level. Um, you but understand I, it has to happen. Yeah, and, and what it means, and and all of that, and yet I go on with my life, and I, you know, debate whether to leave a tip of twenty percent or fifteen percent. You know, so it's like you go along with your daily life, right. and you do whatever you know. And you put it out of your head. And I think it's the same thing with climate change. But I think it's, I think part of the issue is the way that, that we, we assign the, you know, climate change comes up as this kind of political issue or even a scientific issue, but we don't assign it the weight as a, speaking now about our, like as a society that we do with other issues like race or gender, where it's part of the fabric of almost any conversation that we're having. It's there in various ways. It's a consideration. And I think climate change needs to be the same thing. Not, it's not to say that we have to 
hit people over the heads with it all the time. But I think under it has to be part of the sort of fundamental ethic of how we relate to the world and to each other is this question of our place in the natural world and um, what we're doing to, to our natural world and how it, that will affect us in turn. And that and that's something, I guess, in my own life that's become part of that fabric. I think it's part of the fabric of the life of anyone who thinks about these issues. Um, but certainly it needs to be part of the whole, the general like public consciousness, and we're not there yet. Mm. There's a line in the article that says this issue uh, initially was nonpartisan, that it transcended politics in a way that it could appeal to both Republicans and Democrats. Um, eventually that changes. Do you think, realistically, let's use your pragmatic side of your brain, do you see that returning? I do. I think absolutely it will return. The question is when. Right. So yeah. follow-up question. <laughs> what has to happen in this country for that to return? Yeah, so that's really a political... I mean, that's that's essentially the question is what's going to happen to the Republican Party is what, what the question is. And I think as an amateur observer um, that... Not amateur observer. No well, way. Well, a po- poli- po- political observer. I, I mean, I feel like that we're witnessing the death throes of the party and the party's retreated, put all its chips on on a kind of white supremacy, white nationalism. And I don't think that's sustainable in the long run. And it's also become, it's become entirely one dimensional. And so I don't think that the Republican party of today, which is again, totally different party than the Republican party of 1980s was. I don't think in 10 or 20 years, it's going to be the same. And I don't know what will replace it, whether there'll be a third party, whether, uh, and, and the, you know, the GOP will dwindle or, or there'll be some kind of revolution in the, I don't know, you know, who's, it's hard to say, but I think absolutely that, or you might see an accommodation like with gay marriage. I mean, people maybe forget that in the Bush years, I remember when Bush was running against Kerry for reelection, it was a, it was a strategy, a political strategy to put on the ballot in as many swing states as possible, some kind of marriage law saying that marriage is, you know, that basically forbidding gay marriage. And that was seen as a wedge issue that played to the base that would, that would carry the election. That was a winning electoral strategy. Well, that's gone. That was gone in, you know, eight years basically. And now it's gone the other way. And so that kind of change is possible. So you could have a situation where all of a sudden the party, this, this is no longer the central tenet of the party, but yeah, a lot of dramatic things would have to happen. But, or simply a, a really profound, you know, a strong moral argument can be made that um, enters the culture in the same way that the argument for the right of, of uh, gay people to marry entered the culture very dramatically and suddenly and, and often through the younger generations were the ones who, art- who articulated it and made their parents understand. And I mm. think that that can happen with climate. I'm still working through the, these ideas myself, and that's, that's part of the process of turning the piece into a book. And I find I don't really think about things clearly until I write about them, or it's, it's the best way I have to, to understand my own thoughts or you know, articulate my own thoughts about things. Has that always been true about you? Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I find 
I have to really do a lot of writing before I can understand how I think about something. Mm-hmm. And that certainly was the process with this piece. Yeah, something about writing it out. Yeah, and having to look at it on the page and having it apart from yourself and then analyzing it, it gives you a certain distance yeah. that I think is essential. Usually what happens to me is I write it out on the page and then I'm like, oh, God, that's so dumb. Yeah, that's I, the process. Why would I think that? <laughs> right, and then you kind of fine-tune it until See, it makes that, sense. That's why it's much more fun to have a podcast because you can just sort of talk. People aren't checking you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, the terrible thing is when you do an interview and then someone transcribes it and you have yeah. to read it. That's a nightmare. Yeah, yeah, we'll make sure we get it transcribed yeah, here. Right. Um, at a certain point in your life, I mean, I, I know you once wrote a book about film noir in San Francisco. Yeah, my first book. Um, I remember this because I lived there for a few years. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah, and I remember that. You've written plenty of other stories. I remember some of your older pieces for The Believer. I, I, I guess I was wondering, are you exhausted by this story at this point? Like, have you, are you done talking about it? <laughs> Obviously not. Yeah, evidently not. Uh, I thought it was done, uh, but now I'm back into it, and I'm, uh, you know, I'm going to finish the book, and the book will be published next year, and then I'm sure I'll do a lot more talking about it. So I, I'm, I'm not done in this. I thought, I guess, I guess the, the, the better answer is I, I thought I was done when I published the piece, but then in having these you know in in all of these conversations that have arisen since publication i've have alerted me to the fact that there's a much there's another dimension of it that i that i didn't really write about that i will in the book and so that's been somewhat revitalizing and and has um you know it, and so so I, I i do feel there's like there's there's some unfinished business and and so i'm excited for that part of it um, yeah but yeah, just the, the the research and all of that was exhausting. But I'm, I'm done with that part of it. It's now it's now the next phase of trying to grapple a bit more seriously with these these you know more difficult questions that that come up when you start talking about this and you start talking about the future and our inability to act. Um, so the piece sort of set the groundwork for that. But I think in in the book, I hope to kind of broaden that discussion, develop it in a, in a um, in, a, in a more serious way. At the human heart of this whole story, it's where we started, and I think we should end here, which is how we value our future and what that looks like. I was thinking, you know, cause when you're 20, if you're 18, 19, 18, you go to college, but somewhere around 20, I think, a lot of people, if they're privileged and lucky enough, someone in their life, whether it's a parent or a counselor, will say, hey, you know, this is how like a savings account works. <laughs> right. This is how like a credit card works. This is how you put away money. This is how you prepare for a f- an uncertain future. And it is uncertain. And I was thinking about all my friends that I went to school with and all the people who are close to my age and m- even myself, you know, how, how hard it is for people to deeply consider um, a future that they do not know, and I want to I want to ask you: Do you think it is possible for people to change in that way? For people to really deeply start caring about a future that is, let's say, in the third tier, past twenty years? Well, yes, and I think it's possible for people. We're also not even talking about 
the deep future anymore because we're now 30 or 40 years you know later from when this this story begins and and i but yes i think it is possible and i i think you can understand the issue in a deeper way and demand immediate action and that you don't necessarily you don't even necessarily need to resolve some of these questions about the future i think that's if you have a sense of moral urgency about what is the right thing to do and you feel it and you feel that by not doing the right thing you're undermining the basic fabric of society the basic our own sense of worth and of who we are that's what tends to happen with these social issues that it's not just the victims of say if you look at the civil rights era it's not just the victims of racism who were motivated to try to pass laws it was also a lot of white people in power who felt that if we don't address this deep sin on our culture, on our society, on our politics, we aren't who we think we are. We're less than. Um, we're being degraded by it. And I think we are being degraded as a society now by our inaction on climate. And I think once enough people understand that, believe that, feel it, that then action is really possible. Um, and you don't need, I think you can have that kind of moral awakening without having to really dwell too much in the distant future and worry about what happens if it's six degrees or seven degrees Celsius mm-hmm. r- rise. So I think it's possible, but certainly these questions about the future, I mean, <clears throat> that's something that's interested me for a long time. I mean, my second novel, Odds Against Tomorrow, is really about that. And what was interesting about the reception of that book is it got taken up in this conversation about climate change and fiction, whereas really, you know, it was just about any kind of future. It's about a character who's worried about all kinds of future cataclysms. Climate is only part of that. And But it did seem that that response sort of validated or, or, or clarified for me this idea that there is a deep desire to think about the issue of climate change in broader, more personal terms, and it's a desire that's not being met. Mm-hmm. And that I think, and I think that the, the reception of this story is sort of the same thing, sort of even more forcefully has shown that, that there's a, a desire to under, to, people are worried about this, people feel it, there's a sense of unresolved, whether it's guilt or angst or what, how, however you want to describe it, that's out there, that's not being met by the, the writing about this issue, and it's not being met by the way people talk about the issue. And I think that has to change. There's a great desire for it to change, but we haven't quite figured out how to do it. Um, but I think it'll happen soon. Well, uh, Nathaniel Rich, I appreciate your uh, optimism on this. <laughs> we'll, yeah. I'm going to call it measured, optimism. Measured optimism, yeah. You know, that's more than most people these days. <coughs> yeah, well, we'll see. I mean, I think, I think we have it in ourselves, you know. But I, I, I'm excited. I mean, the response has shown that there is a seriousness, I think, that people feel is missing. And, and I think that that's the beginning of, of, of some kind of a change. I hope so. Uh, Nathaniel, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Good talking to you.
Special thanks this week to Jordan Cohen of the New York Times, Ian Chang, and Nathaniel Rich for coming over to the house. If you haven't read Nathaniel's seminal piece of journalism in the New York Times Magazine, you can do so online and in print. The piece is called Losing Earth, The Decade We Almost Stopped Climate Change. To learn more about Nathaniel and his work, you can do so at nathanielrich.com. To learn more about our show, you can do so at talkeasypod.com. If you enjoyed today's episode of the show, I imagine you'll like other conversations I've had with journalists. Wesley Morris, Malcolm Gladwell, Amy Nicholson, Jen Yamato, Torre. You can find all those and more on our website, iTunes, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. As always, our show is executive produced by David Chen, graphics by Ian Jones, illustrations by Krishna Shenoy. Our associate producer is Elliot Weintraub, and the show is produced by Dylan Peck. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you next week. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.